Kia ora. Good morning, Lane Park Church. What I want to pick up this morning is about what it means to live post-resurrection life. The wonderful Easter experience took place 2,000 years ago. We celebrated it last weekend. Um, we actually celebrate it every living moment of our life. Do you know that? We really do. And so uh, I want to talk about that. So let's start from Romans 6, verse 3, which says, Or do you not know that all of us have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that, and these are the parts of this that I want to focus on this morning, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Amen. It also says in Ephesians 2, Colossians 3, lots of other places that we have been seated above with Christ where he is seated at the right hand of God. So this is really incredible. It's significant not only to our own lives, but to also for the health and the well-being of society around us. So we need to understand that when Jesus says it is finished, only God can get so much out of three words because we could preach on it all day, all year, probably for the next 10 years, on just what it means when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. But one of the things that he meant was, Having to live in a fallen world is over. 2,000 years ago, Jesus' statement was, no longer do you, in Christ, have to live out of the fallen world. Have to have your lives dictated to you by the fall which took place initially with Adam and Eve in the garden. That has come to an end And 2,000 years ago, a whole new creation, a whole new created order has begun. Now, it is not completed till Christ returns, but it actually began 2,000 years ago. And I want to talk more about that this morning. Because the term resurrection means that Jesus did not come to resuscitate this world. Here's something else we need to hear. Nor did he come to condemn this world. He came to resurrect this world and to resurrect the lives of the people in this world who will accept the offering and the sacrifice and the empowerment that he achieved on both the, through both the cross and the resurrection. See, we cannot find freedom in any way, shape, or form in the fallen world. Freedom and fallenness are like north and south, or like fire and ice. They are completely opposite to one another, and they are poles apart. But we need to see that God's action in Jesus as a result of the Easter experience means a whole new way of life is not only possible for you and me, 
We're actually called to it. We're empowered to it. And in fact, Jesus calls us to settle for nothing less. It's not an option. It's not something we can say, oh, that's not bad. I think I'll take that or at least some of that. We don't stroll around the supermarket with a trolley picking this bit off the shelves but leaving that one. Jesus is saying, take the lot. Not only did I bring it for you at great cost, I expect you to walk in the newness of life now. Don't mess around with what was old and could only bring death. See, the sacrifice of of the cross and the hope for the future come together in resurrection life. And although the cross and the resurrection are very distinctive, and I do believe, like a lot of commentators and theologians in the recent 20 years, we've focused well on the cross but ignored the resurrection, and some of that's all coming back now, which I personally am enjoying. But we should not and try to embrace one without the other. So we need to understand this. We endure the cross because of the resurrection. We face suffering in this life. Jesus promised us it was inevitable. But the difference we have, because everybody who lives on this planet faces suffering, whether they're believers or not, everybody's life has an aspect of suffering in it. But where the difference is for us, we can embrace suffering with joy. And if we put a full stop at the end of that, I couldn't. And I wouldn't. But we can embrace suffering with joy because of the hope of the resurrection, which is historical. It has already taken place. So out of whatever death experience we may go through, whether it just came upon us, it was nothing to do with us, whether it was because of our sin, our weaknesses, our failure, or whether it was just the circumstances of life that happen, whatever we face, and we've sung about it this morning, Jesus has promised he will bring new life out of it if we push into him, if we endure, if we hang on there with him and the hope of resurrection, ultimately new life will come to us on this life and this planet, not just in the age to come. That's the hope we have. We don't endure suffering or face it with joy just because we like suffering. If that's the case, you're a sadist. And that's a problem. I would suggest you need deliverance. We endure suffering because of what was done with the resurrection, which means new life will come out of it and means whatever it is, whether it was imposed on us or whatever, God will cause all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that is everybody in this room who is in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, come and see us at the end because it's not an exclusive club. Jesus meant it for everybody to belong to. There's always hope because the resurrection is available. The tragedy of suicide means it is birthed, and I don't want to place any judgment on what people go through and what brings them to that, but the tragedy of it, it is birthed out of a view that there is 
no hope. And in Christ, there is, both for today, tomorrow, and forever. I want to bring a challenge to you this morning. See, by the, in the first 300 years of Christianity from the cross on, Christians were facing persecution in a terrible way. You can find it in re- history. Uh, one of the, the best resources is Fox's Book of Martyrs. I have the old version and the new ter- version on my shelf, and I've never been able to fully read both as they give an account of what Christians went through, not only for the first 300 years, but during that time. But here's what happened. In the fourth century, everything changed. And Christianity uh, became the state religion, and it moved from a time of persecution to a time of peace and prosperity. Now, we should all rejoice about this because that's what we want and that's what God wants. But listen to this. What Christians faced at that time and what we face here today in the 21st century Western world is this. Here's this terrible statement. Christianity thrives under persecution but does very, very poorly under times of blessing and prosperity. Let me repeat that. You can, I can give you 2,000 years of history to prove this. This is not the way God intended it, God forbid. But Christianity thrives under persecution, but does very poorly under times of prosperity and freedom. And that brothers and sisters, is never the way it should be. Read the history of Israel. Read the history of the church. See, the problem is when persecution is taken off and freedom and prosperity come, we tend to drift further and further into the world and the world system and the world's goods and the world's entertainment and further and further away from God. And in the Israel times, the only way God could pull Israel back was exile them from the land for a period of time until they cried out to him and he called them back in. I don't want to be exiled from a society that has health and prosperity in it because the freedom that comes from it should enhance our walk with God, not limit it. So here is our question. Do we find our identity, our meaning, and our responses to life from this world, or do we accept the necessity of the death of this world system and draw our life from the world to come? Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this word well, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's our choice. Our faith cannot be static. It's like a car with no handbrake. You can't just drive up the hill and stop. It rolls backwards. We've got to keep the power on to keep going. And I want to talk a little bit about this for the... the under the biblical view of freedom. See, it's important to understand that the world to come 
is already here. It's not some abstract shadow world that exists beyond time or beyond reach. There's the world to come, the new creation, what Jesus produced is a present reality. I want you to hear that. What is it? A present reality. It exists now. The reason why we don't see much of it is because we're not living by it, we're not drawing from it, and we're not making it available to all our circumstances and our situations from life. See, we're not primarily about improving society. We will do that if we get the opportunity. But that's not what we are about. We are about rebuilding society or bringing a whole new society to grow up in the midst of the one that already exists. See, a lot of people say God's a great problem solver. Well, is God good at solving problems? He needs to be because we create enough for him. So the answer is yes. But listen to me. God is not primarily a problem solver. And God does not want you primarily to be a problem solver. He wants us to create. God is creative. He's always creating something new. And we need to shift the mindset. Don't keep trying to fix that which is broken and old. Bring new life to it. Bring new creativity to it. If you're raising a family, bring new life and creative ways of raising a family. And whatever your job or your business is, get in there. Don't focus on fixing what is broken and condemning the sin and the weakness and the the coming, get in there and create something new. Release the creativity the Holy Spirit has put in your being, which you encountered at the point of salvation. It's too easy to get locked into the world system and just try and fix the sin. That's not what God's about at all. He wants us and his people to go out there and create something new and do it in a whole lot of new ways. That's why in the fifth commandment, it says, honor your mother and father. And so we turn over the page and say, okay, where's the hundred point list of how you do that? God's saying, I don't care how you do it. Become creative and honor your mother and father any way you want. Just do it because he doesn't want to um, close down our creativity by giving us a 10 point plan. Do you get that? We need to get that. That's why the don'ts in Scripture are far less than we would lead other people to believe because God's about do. God's about take this off and put this on and let's get creative, people. Let's find new ways of doing everything, new ways of dealing with sickness, new ways of using power other than the ones that are draining resources. Let's find new ways of having good manners on the bus and the train and everywhere else we go. Creativity goes right down to even putting the trash out. I love the story. I need to watch my time. I love the story... Um, overseas somewhere 
I've got all the details in, in uh, my book. I just can't pull them down right now. But I love the story about a city is, and, and Europe has got a problem with trash. And people are dropping trash everywhere and not putting it on the bin. And next thing, a dear mum decides, here's a good way. I'm going to have all the kids in the city picking up trash. So they put into the rubbish bin, every time you put a piece of trash in, it says, thank you. Often in a, in a Disney cartoon's voice. So guess what? All the kids in the city want to hear the rubbish bin say thank you and all these different voices. So they're running around everywhere looking for trash to put in the rubbish bin. That's called being creative. Instead of saying, we will fine you $200. In fact, it's three fifty now, I think, in Singapore, if you drop a lolly paper. Or we will penalise you or we'll be punitive. Let's get out of that stuff and be creative because God's put his new life in us and there is a whole new way of living available to us. We just need to express it. Amen? That's fun. That's better than don't do, don't do, don't do. That becomes fun and exciting. See, what we need to see, that when Jesus died and came, and, and came back to life, he doesn't offer us a better system. He offers us himself. Wow. That is amazing. And that is powerful. See, the new way of life was offered to him personally. And here's the amazing story. The Holy Spirit who resided in the Holy of Holies and could only be visited once a year with the right amount of sacrifices and the right procedure and only by the high priest once a year. And that high priest only ever got one turn in his whole lifetime of doing this job and he better get the sacrifices and he better get everything right. Otherwise, he's going to enter into the presence of God and be zapped immediately. Now that has changed, that that Holy Spirit has been let out. And guess where he lives today? In you and in me. Our access to him is less than a breath away. Everywhere we go, he is there within us, waiting to be let out by us expressing him. See, Jesus said, if you abide in my word, You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. But freedom can only come as we are identified with Christ and we are found in him. And freedom is about producing a whole new way of life. And I haven't got time to go into this uh, this morning, but let me just say this. There is huge risk as an individual in becoming free because we're asked to lower our defenses. We're asked to put down the things we have shielded and guarded our life and our heart with through whatever circumstances, situation, or worldview we might have. And we cannot put them down and take the risk unless we find that freedom in Christ. And we won't. But once we find it, Once we learn who the Holy Spirit is, 
once we learn what this new creation we can draw from is, once we learn what the armor of God is and how to wear it and apply it to our lives, once we learn those things, we can finally become a true human being and without that we can't. There's a lot of work in that, but before you get too worried about it, just remember one of the assignments of the Holy Spirit is to bring this transformation to you and make you more like Christ even when you are lying asleep in your bed. We're not on our own for this, brothers and sisters. You can think about that for a minute while I'm having a drink. See, it's so important that we shake off our condemnation. Yes, did Jesus come to defeat sin? Yes, he did. What is Jesus' issue with sin? Jesus' issue with sin is that sin separates us from God, from the loving relationship from the Father, and from the creative power that he wants to express through us. And let me, while we're talking about this, and I'm not going to dwell on this, but let me say this. The only way anybody gets free from sin in Christ is by first hating it. The beginning of being free from sin is first to hate hate it. The Bible does not tell us anywhere to resist sin. It tells us to resist the devil, but it doesn't tell us to resist sin. The Bible tells us to hate sin or abhor abhor sin. Now, the term hate is not used very often in the Bible because it's a horrible word. It says, I'll give you no freedom, no mercy, no consideration. I will just hate you and every part of my thinking and being is in destroying you. That's why the Bible doesn't use the word hate very often. We should never say, I hate somebody. But that's the word that is used for our relationship with sin. That's the way we need to treat sin. It never implies, the word hate, never implies partly embracing something. It is complete and utter rejection, not even the consideration that there could be something good in it. So I want to pick up a practical point and I'm just going to focus on this as we move down to the rest of the message. I want to talk about anger. Why did I pick anger? In fact, I wanted to pick a whole lot of things but I don't have the time. But today we live in a very angry society. The evidence of this is found everywhere through vandalism, through graffiti. Most of the graffiti you read everywhere is angry. It's foursome processed. It's seen through people fighting in the streets. It's seen through newspaper editorials and letters to the editor. It's seen in the debating chamber of parliament and on it goes. See, I don't really want to get into this because I might get into trouble, but I want to say this. I don't normally make political statements off the pulpit. One of the reasons Donald Trump has had so much appeal is because he is saying we're going to stick it to the bad guys. 
And we all feel victimized. We all feel mistreated and abused. We watch what's going on and think, why don't we just go and drop a bomb on those people? Why don't we just go and wipe them out? And there is a degree where Donald Trump is threatening to do just that. And that gathers up something in our fallen nature which says, yeah, I'm angry, I'm mistreated, and I want to get even. Now, that is totally contrary to Jesus Christ and who he is and what he did and what he has called us to live by. Totally contrary. So all it does, it just stirs all of this stuff up inside of us that can never come to a healthy expression. We're meant to be angry at sin and at injustice, but we're not meant to be vengeful. There's other ways of dealing with all these things. See, some people are just angry because they want to be angry. I love the movie Tombstone. In fact, I make sure I watch it at least once a year. And one of the things that is, I, I find is a profound statement is that Wyatt Earp asked Doc Holliday, what is the deal with Johnny Ringo? Why is he so angry? And Doc Holliday says, for being born. Some people are just angry for being born. And some of that's in society. They're angry with themselves. They're angry with life. In fact, they're angry with anything and everything, particularly when they're driving down the road. See, apart from Jesus, there's very little hope for these people. Anger is one of the most difficult things we will ever have to deal with in our lives. And angry people can be very dangerous. And I want to warn you, there's potential in each of us to become like them. Don't hang around with angry people. They will always cause trouble eventually. So what do we as Christians get angry about in a negative way? We tend to get angry if we're told off or rebuked or corrected. Or if we can't have what we want and we tell our kids off for it all the time but fail to look in the mirror. Or if our spouse doesn't behave in the way we expected or wanted or our brother or our sister. We get angry with God because he doesn't perform in the way that he wanted at the time that we wanted. And pride and selfishness makes demands that are totally unjust and then give rise to anger when they're not met. See, this is a character of a fallen nature, even in a very good person. See, here's the problem. What we have to do, what our starting point has to be, and you can say that is impossible. Yes, it is, except in Christ because of the resurrection. What we have to do is that dealing with this begins with understanding that our own sense of rights or merits normally far exceed anybody's ability to meet them. I want to repeat that. Those of you that are married, put your ears on. Those of you that are in any form of family, put your ears on. The problem is our sense of rights and what we are due normally exceeds anybody's ability to meet them. And then we get angry. We get annoyed. 
if you deal with this alone, there will be very few relational problems you'll experience in your life. See, the problem is, once we get angry, sin is now crouching at the door. I look back on my life, both as a Christian and a non-Christian, and I deeply regret many of the things I either said or did in anger. They're the worst things that I have done. And for so many of us, when we finally move into this, the enemy moves in and empowers us to achieve what is destructive and what breaks down. And the problem is with so much of the stuff we do in anger, once it's said or done, it can't be taken back. There are people in prisons who have had one outburst of anger that got out of control and put them in prison. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, don't even call one another an idiot because he's suggesting this is where it starts, then it escalates and it can finish up in murder or doing horrible things or whatever. So nail it right at the very beginning. By the way, not all anger is hot-tempered. It's just as much an abuse of anger to shut yourself in a room sulking or play the silent game, which we males are very good at doing because it's a great form of quiet manipulations. How are you, dear? All right. Because we want our wives to keep saying, how are you, dear? How are you, dear? Instead, they should say, go for a walk, you grumpy old foot. No, okay, we won't go. (laughs) We won't go there. So I've got to finish. So how do, we de- how do we deal with this? Firstly, I want to say that first part of anger, a major part of anger is often a demonic stronghold and you can't deal with that, but Jesus can. The resurrection power can break that out of your system and you can be set free. You may need to go and see somebody. You may need special prayer, but that can finally take that incontrollable rage that kicks in is often not of yourself. It's something you inherited and in Christ we can be set free from it. I have been. I was. I thank God for it. I knew the difference the next day and from every day since then. I was set free from it. It can happen. Only in Christ, but it can happen. Second key point is unforgiveness. See, often we become so angry because of things that have happened in the past. One of the difficulties of marriage counsel is history. People, it's the you always, you never, and they call back to their history five years ago, 10 years ago, 15. Guys, somewhere you've got to break the cycle and stop it. And the only way you will do that is through coming to Christ and offering forgiveness through his power, not yours, because Jesus doesn't just bring forgiveness, he is forgiveness. When we embrace Christ, he doesn't just give us the power to forgive, his forgiveness flows through our being and the whole of life takes on a different view. See, we've got to be careful when we say, God, I just want you to be fair and give me what is due, what is my due. We're asking God to give us a lost eternity because that's all that is our due from him. Instead, we say to him, will you forgive me? 
I know I've fallen short from you. Will you forgive me? And he says, yes, my mercies are new every morning. What is the joy from that? Every morning we can be restored to a proper relationship with the Father in Christ because of what he achieved. Wonderful, amazing, credible. So what do we do? We didn't practice much time out when we raised our kids. We more had the wooden spoon. Now, although I still believe in the wooden spoon, and I can probably be arrested for saying that, but I don't really care. But although I still believe in that, I love time out. I wish we had have done more than time out. One of my grandsons, I won't say which one it is, we call him the time out king. You frequently go out and say, hi, whatever his name is, time out again, yeah, because he's standing outside, you see, while the rest of the family's in having fun. But we need to practice time out as adults because instead of saying something, if we take ourselves for a walk or if we stand in the toy cupboard, or no, that's not it, Jesse, if we stand somewhere where there's no toys, I'm, I'm watching Jesse and Angie with their two young kids because for the time out. So we stand somewhere quietly for a while, take ourselves for a walk, and the anger subsides, we see things different, and here is the freedom We haven't said what we were about to say or do at the time, and there's wonderful freedom in that. I used to, I don't do it now. I used to go for a walk so annoyed about what my wife had been doing and didn't do and didn't notice and didn't notice about me, and God would never say a thing until I finally called down. Then he'd say, hey, Bruce, guess what? You've got the right now to go back and apologize and ask forgiveness. You've got to be kidding me. But what about, but what about, Bruce, I'm only concerned with you. When you've got time, have a look through the Bible, through the Gospels, and see how often Jesus was brought disputes and how he never made a ruling. Isn't that incredible? He just said, you deal with your stuff. And here you are, I'm going to tell you how to do it. He never said he's right and he's wrong. Never. Nowhere. Second point. So take yourself for a walk. Have a breather. Take some space. Count to 10. It sounds funny. It's effective. It works. Second point. Evaluation. When you walk away and have cooled down, seek God and ask him this one question. What was it that caused what just went off in me? See, if the Holy Spirit's here to convict us of sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come, he will reveal that to us. Don't say, what is it about my spouse, my this, my that? Say, what is it in me that just caused that reaction? Am I frustrated over something? Is there someone I need to forgive? Is there an old hurt that's reappeared because I've never really dealt with it? See, I trust the Holy Spirit to reveal these things to me. He is great at what he does. In fact, he's perfect. He knows how to do it. James 1.20 warns us that nothing, hardly anything says in anger will ever produce any good fruit. We need to remember that. Okay, I'm going to finish. See, if we become people who worship and if we embrace God's word and feed upon it, 
And if we focus on whatever is good and honorable and lovely and of good repute, we'll gain this life in an ever-increasing way. So I want to finish on this scripture. John 2.10 says, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine till now. Whenever you ask people to quote the scripture, they frequently say, you have kept the good wine till last. I have checked every known translation. On my computer, I can get about 150 of them. And not one translation does it say, you have kept the good wine till last. Every translation says you have kept the good wine till when? Now. Why? Because the good wine was given out at the, uh, after the day of resurrection on the day of Pentecost and it is available to us when? Now. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you for your great gift. We want to thank you for this gift of life which 2,000 years ago you made the decree that we no longer needed to live out of a fallen world. We can put on a whole new life, express it and impart it to others. Lord, help us see this. If there is anybody here today struggling with anger, Lord, I just pray that you put them alongside the right people, give them wisdom, insight and understanding that they can get help to seek freedom. Father, we don't want to live in an angry society. We want to bring people that bring peace everywhere we go. Help us do that, Father, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Jesse. I, um, I'm always jealous when my kids go to timeout because they get a bit of space. They don't enjoy it. But Bruce said that I can go to timeout too. So I'm quite pleased about that. One of the things that Bruce also mentioned when he says we're not there to fix old problems but to build something new up, I think that's so powerful. Take some time to think about what it is, not just to fix the old, but build something new up in its stead. And I love that as we're talking about post-resurrection life, we're talking about the life of Jesus. It's not this magical thing that happens while we're watching it over here, but I love the practical outworkings of even just a topic like anger, that his new life comes in his power, but there's practical steps that we need to go after it as well.